Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of the Brainstorm Kitchen Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Q. My co-host, Logan, is busy being a scientist, but I'm just here to introduce a little interview I recorded with the actor Robert Picardo. As always, with guest episodes, there are some technical issues, but I've done my best to fix them in post, and I hope you enjoy it otherwise, because it was a great conversation. So, I guess I should introduce you. Um, uh, the audio you're hearing with me is uh, actor and uh, sci-fi extraordinaire uh, Robert Picardo. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure, Q. I'm happy to, uh, to talk to you and to talk to your greater audience. Yeah, um, well, we'll see how many people that is. But uh, I guess, obviously... <laughs> we'll see how, how great it really is, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, you're very known for a few uh, big roles, but just for those of you um, in the audience who might not be familiar, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? All righty. Um, I am a professional actor for about uh, 42, 43 years now. Uh, began my career uh, uh, doing a couple leads on Broadway. The second lead, where I played the son of the famous movie star uh, Jack Lemmon in the late 70s on Broadway. I It took me to Los Angeles, where I recreated the role, and I started to work regularly in uh, movies and television, as well as keep up my theater profile on the West Coast. And most of your listeners may have heard of me as the emergency medical hologram on Star Trek Voyager for seven years in primetime and endless reruns uh, on various video platforms and BBC America presently, and also as Commander Richard Woolsey, formerly douchebag Richard Woolsey, when, before he became commander of the Stargate Atlantis uh, expedition. Um, but I've also done uh, quite a few Joe Dante movies, and I love to cook. That's me in less than 60 seconds. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, obviously, we connected through our uh, mutual friend and your former co-star, David Hewlett, who is, uh, was also on Stargate Atlantis, of course. And, uh, you know, he's a bit of, uh, let's say, less experienced with cooking. So <laughs> whenever I talk to him about food, he always... He would always bring you up, so that's why we're doing this. Well, that's very kind. David Hewlett is one of the funniest actors I, uh, I've ever worked with. He had the capacity to crack me up on the set, which is not easy to do. Um, he, is, he is funnier when he's being annoying uh, than almost any other actor I've worked with, but I, ne I didn't work with him long enough to figure out how much of his annoying quality was just... David Hewlett and how much of it, David Hewlett and how much of it was his character, uh, Rodney, uh, on the show. But the great thing is, it didn't matter. Okay, so uh, as you mentioned, you love to cook. So I'm curious, 
have you always loved to cook? Like, is food big in your family, or is that sort of a passion you developed later in well, life? Uh, my my heritage is 100% Italian. Mm. All four of my grandparents were born in Italy and emigrated to the U.S. Uh, during uh, the early part of the second decade of, uh, of the 20th century, and uh, that means that uh, both of my parents are first uh, generation born here. Uh, the whole tradition of the importance of cuisine in Italian culture was definitely carried over. My mom, uh, God rest her, was a terrific cook. And I think the reason I got interested in cooking from a young age is that uh, I, was, I was the youngest of four children, and my father passed away when I was only nine years old. And uh, often uh, on the weekends, uh, you know, what do you do with your mom when you're nine years old? You don't go to a football game the way you did with your dad. So, uh, and the Italian tradition of family dinner on Sundays, where you often invite other relatives over and whatnot, was carried on. So I, I often helped her cook, especially on Sundays. If we made homemade pasta, I would be the guy who kneaded the dough and, and crank the noodles in the uh, machine to press them flat and then cut them into spaghetti or linguine. We had one of those old stainless steel Atlas spaghetti crankers. Technically, you're making egg noodles and not strictly pasta because it has egg and flour mixed together with a little bit of oil and doesn't have, it's not just flour and water, which I believe can only be extruded from uh, uh, that kind of a pasta maker. Uh, actually, I've had some success making um, flour and water and even um, semolina and water doughs with a, um, a roller, but it is, um, it, is, it is a little trickier. It is a little, t it's the, the dough, my understanding, the dough is uh, stickier, right? Or, or if you let it glutinate, does it get as easy to handle as if it had egg in it and as elastic? Um, I think it depends. I think from what I've read, the sort of egg and flour, that's more northern Italian. And then the semolina-based noodles are more sort of southern Italian. But semolina is just a kind of wheat flour. It's just, isn't it just usually grainier? It's more like sand um, than it it's, is um, like powder. It's, it's from Durham wheat. And interestingly, mm -hmm. semolina is actually claimed to the chaff when they mill semolina, when they mill Durham flour. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, no, it's a very coarse flour. Mm -hmm. And the most dry pasta that you buy in the store is also semolina based. Mm -hmm. uh, that I do know. Um, I know that, uh, that you know, mo I, I buy a lot of uh, uh, either imported pasta or um, uh, Barilla, which is made uh, here in America under license with uh, Italian, uh, with their Italian uh, uh, parent corp. Uh, so, yes, I know that the best uh, dry pasta is... Uh, is semolina. I've tried, like you, I've tried working with semolina, but I did it with at least some egg in it because that made it more elastic and easy to handle. But I don't make, I, I make much more pizza uh, than I do uh, homemade pasta at this time. It's a little, uh, uh, you know, it's more flash and glam making pizza. I love using a wood-fired oven and uh, 
you know, throwing the, the sliding the pizza on the hot oven floor when it's 700 degrees and pulling it out about three and a half or four minutes later. It's very, it's instant gratification. Yeah, I know. I uh, definitely want to get some sort of pizza baking setup, whether I, you know, convince my mom to finally build an oven in the backyard or, you know, maybe modify, modify my oven a little bit. Well, um, I, uh, I had a, a pizza oven at my house. I've since uh, sold that house as I'm uh, considering moving back to the East Coast after all of these years out in sunny California. Uh, but I do miss the uh, I do miss the pizza oven more than uh, than I think any other aspect of that of that, that beautiful house I used to live in. But I have a dear friend and a Star Trek colleague who so envied my pizza oven that he got one of his own. So I can always go over to his house when I'm out in California and uh, and bake in his oven. Well, if you ever do want to uh, give more pasta a try, I can give you some tips. Actually, I would love that. Um, yeah, no. The um, I, I don't know if you have a KitchenAid, but the um, the KitchenAid pasta extruder attachment yes. mm-hmm. is okay. It's not great, but uh, the problem with pasta extruders, they're either like two hundred dollars and they're okay, or they're three thousand dollars. Aha. And then they're much better. Do the three thousand dollar one have brass dies that they extrude um, through? I think you can get both because mm-hmm. most of those higher end models are like designed for restaurants, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although, I well, know. I do. I I have an unopened. I do have an unopened. I have a KitchenAid that's open, but I have an unopened uh, pasta attachment I was given some time ago. Uh, so maybe it's time to finally use it. But honestly, Q, I cannot remember because I got it and it stayed in the box for a few years. Uh, I can't remember whether it was a, a, a cranker or an extruder, whether it was more of the style of the, cause don't they also make one that, that, that actually presses the noodles flat like our old. Yeah. Oh yeah. They, they have, you know, they have the roller and the extruder. I'm actually lucky enough to have both. And again, it's um, it, uh, both are the roller is obviously making rolled pasta is in general easier. Um, I've actually taken to making quite a few ramen noodles now with the roller. Um, but uh, yeah, again, the extruder. Uh, honestly, if you do have the extruder, don't follow the recipe that that comes with it. And the reason you don't follow the recipe that comes with it is because it's, the, the it's, pot, it's, it's too wet? Yeah, it's crap. It's crap. Well, I, I also think that the roller the roller versus the extruder would be a great name for like a really low-budget horror movie that you could make in your kitchen with your KitchenAid and your two different – you know, you have a face in a world where pasta can be rolled or extruded. It's – Roller versus extruder, rated R. Something like that. Yeah, I know. Maybe we'll have to do a collab. I don't think you're smelling what I'm cooking there, Q. You don't think that's a, a good? I mean, this is a really low budget movie. This movie could be made for you know like seventy eight dollars. I think mm-hmm. no one no one would come see it. 
but I've been in low-budget horror movies that cost far more that no one came to see. Mm -hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, I think it's a good investment. Well, I feel like you would need an extruder or a roller that's big enough for someone to fall in. You would, I'm sorry, uh, it glitched on my end when you said that, so you would need an extruder to what? That's big enough for someone to fall in. Oh, I see. So in other words, like the wood chipper in Fargo. Yeah. Uh, you'd have to, yeah, well, you're absolutely right. If it's a horror movie, uh, you gotta, you gotta, what do you call it, crack a few eggs to make an omelet? You gotta grind up a few people to make a horror movie. Well, I, the I question guess is, you could threaten to put someone's hand in the roller. But mm -hmm. that's not as exciting. It's a little lame. You know, mm -hmm. I like the way you're thinking of this. This could be, uh, it could be like a little shop of KitchenAid uh, attachments, something like that. Maybe we can get uh, a sponsor. <laughs> maybe, maybe the KitchenAid could actually sing, right? Like the plant in Little Shop of Horrors. I don't know. Anyway, it's a great idea. One of your audience is going to run with this idea and make a very <laughs> unsuccessful horror movie. And then uh, sue us for not stopping them, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if you're going kitchen attachments, they also have the meat grinder, which is, like, automatic. You know, you've given this entirely too much thought. I'm sorry I brought it up. Let's get back to cooking versus um, dismembering, <laughs> all right? Well, I mean, did, did you ever watch the show, Hannibal? Uh, yeah, uh, the show, I did, because uh, Brian Fuller, one of our excellent Star Trek Voyager writers who was very young on our show went on to uh, create Hannibal among other successful shows. Now I think he, he created and executive produced gods and monsters. And he, of course he also was a major guiding force to the new Star Trek discovery series. So uh, yes, I did watch quite a number of Hannibal episodes and they were very cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I gotta say the food looked pretty good. Yeah, the food. He had very good presentation, which you really want in a in a cannibal chef. I think presentation is unusually important because, let's face it, you don't want to you don't want your uh, your diners to go. You want them to just enjoy the meal. Um, so I I uh, I definitely I see what you mean, but I think we should get off of uh you know we should get back to real cooking rather than giving any bad ideas. Uh, I to guess your, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious. Again, my uh, my dad's side of the family is actually from Italy. Also, what uh, just I'm curious, what general region was your family from? Um, my father's side uh, comes from uh, southern Italy, uh, from Campania, from uh, a town called Monte Corvino Rovella, which is near Salerno. It's also relatively close to Naples as well. Uh, it's a mountain town. I think the present population is, uh, is uh, about 30 to 35,000 people. And uh, my mother's family is from Abruzzo, a little farther north, from a little tiny mountain town. I think the nearest city you may have heard of is Pescara in, uh, uh, on the Adriatic. And the, the town my mother's side comes from is called Bomba, B-O-M-B-A, which I believe means uh, Italian, uh, is it, it means bomb in Italian, bomba. Um, I had a, I had a very, a, a friend years ago, a marvelous and hilarious gay man. When I told him that my uh, <clears throat> mother's side came from bomba, he said, bomba, 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 bomba. 
That is the sound Sophia Loren makes when she runs down the beach. <laughs> I know it's not a classy comment, guys, but come on, this is a long time ago. Yeah, um, so yeah, um, are there any sort of very regional, sort of weird little dishes that you remember from your childhood? Because I think a lot of people are sort of familiar with the big Italian classics, but I'm always curious about those sort of... Well, this is um, one Roman, one Tuscan dish that I just had this last visit. Now, remember, my family is not from Tuscany, but relatively close by. But I just, that you're probably very familiar with, because you obviously know more about cooking than I do, called rebollita. You know what rebollita is? A heavy, I mean, a hearty kind of a, uh, it's sort of a halfway between a soup and a, and a stew hmm. that is made with um, that's made with radicchio, sort of a deep purple local kind of radicchio, uh, and beans and stale bread, <laughs> huh. uh, really super stale bread. So it is thick, and you it you have the the bean in it, the olive oil. I believe it can or it need not have some uh, tomato in it. I've had it made with tomato and without tomato, but the key of the beans. And the and this uh, really uh, delicious uh, deep purple radicchio and the stale bread, which gives it its body and makes it thick. And it doesn't you don't quite know what it is. You go, this is just delicious. You really taste um, uh, the beans and the radicchio, but the olive oil and it has to have really good olive oil. And it probably has a little black pepper, maybe a little pepper. Well, to give a little extra spice. It's served, of course, with the ubiquitous uh, grated Parmigiano Romano on top. It is a delicious and hearty and super easy to make soup, but you have to substitute your greens here. You have to either use some kind of kale. I've never seen the, the exact kind of purpley black radicchio here, just the sort of reddish one that we have here. But that is one of my favorite dishes, and I highly recommend it if you go... If you go to Tuscany, definitely it's spelled. It literally means reboiled. I think. I think rebollita. R e b o l l i. It might be i t i a or i t a. I don't know. Go. You know, my Italian's not so good. Yeah. No. Um, well, but from my little town, from my mother's town in Abruzzo, uh, there's a cookie that you have to have when you get there. Uh, we grew up. It was our beloved Christmas cookie that was passed down general, generationally in our family. It's sort of a, uh, they can be made in different Obviously, I've seen them shaped like the letter C. It is a stuffed cookie with a very sort of a hard um, uh, butter crust that is rolled around a, a thick filling that is, um, I think, a lot of ground up walnuts. And some probably they just take grape jam and and cook it down with with uh, with ground up nuts and I think either chopped raisins or currants in it. I don't know what else is in the filling. I, the filling I think a lot of orange peel for flavoring, orange zest. And then it's wrapped in these cookies. And then you have to be very careful that it doesn't leak because this thick jam will leak out when you bake it. Now in my uh, the town that my um, that my grandmother came from, they're shaped like an S, like a little swan, uh, like a swan. And they're called in Italian, uccelli pieni, which means full 
bird. It's a bird that's been stuffed. And uh, those are my favorite cookies. So that I don't know how to make them. Um, uh, the recipe, I have the recipe. It takes a patience that I don't have. I, I prefer to make main courses. Uh, and, uh, and I like to be a, a really fast, a quick and dirty, high heat mm. cook. You know, I don't follow recipes well. I make things up. I go to a restaurant. I taste something in, that I like, and I try to guess what's in it. So I am, a, I am a very impatient cook who likes to try to guess his way into making something that's going to be good. And I've gotten pretty good within the limitations of being that kind of a cook. If I were really serious, I would follow recipes. I would read books. I would watch cooking shows. And I, uh, at this stage of life, I think I'm too old to change. Yeah, well, no, I, I might, uh, I may have to get those from you at some point. Those really sound uh, interesting, because uh, you know, there's my grandmother on my dad's side. You know, she worked in kitchens a lot, so she really adopted sort of a lot of the North Americanized Italian foods. But then you. You know, you get those occasional little glimpses into the regional specialties. And I've never heard of either of those dishes that you mentioned. So well, you can look up Rebolita. You could probably look up yeah. on, you know, find a recipe online because it's pretty popular. And uh, and it's, it's simple. The hard thing is just getting the bread stale enough. And mm. I think when it's made right, it's made with a certain kind of stale bread. You know, certain bakeries... My understanding is certain bakeries in different parts of Italy, they sell this sort of pre-staled, maybe twice baked, and then let the, you know, stale bread. One of the best breakfasts I've ever had in southern Italy, where my father's family, they gave me a peasant breakfast, which was a big chunk of pecorino, I'm sorry, of uh, Reggio Parmesan cheese that you broke off chunks, mix it with a half of a very ripe delicious fig and then you and then you stuffed it with a little chunk of the stalest bread you ever had but it was a slightly the bread had a slight slight faint anise taste to it mm. so it was the, it was almost like a biscotti but it was really blander it was more like stale bread with the sweet fig with the salty cheese and you couldn't get enough of this it was so great it was called he called it a peasant breakfast or farmer's breakfast um in Italian. Anyway, that was a, so that was something that you wouldn't normally think of mixing together, but I would investigate for any of your listeners that love to cook, look up, try to research on the internet, the different kinds of uses of stale bread in Italian cooking. Some, they're pasta dishes that part of the, you know, part of the, what clings to the noodle are breadcrumbs. It's oh, breadcrumbs yeah. and olive oil. Um, that, that's used a lot as a thickener. I've actually seen a lot that almost, if you were sort of didn't have a lot of money, instead of finishing a dish with with like uh, cheese, you would finish it with like garlicky breadcrumbs, basically. And I've actually ad ad adapted some of that technique myself. I have a few videos on making um, flavored breadcrumbs. So you actually like soak bread in a flavorful liquid and then you dehydrate it. Mm -hmm. 
So you get this so, really. So go ahead. You know, it's a great it's a great idea. We the there were so many solutions that poor you know poor cultures made to make the food flavorful that were that that have become part of you know of uh, uh, of uh, haute cuisine you know high class cooking you'll go to restaurants now and see clearly a peasant recipe mm-hmm. that is now on a you know on a gourmet menu just because they found such great ways of making delicious food on you know and stretch and that's that's one of the one and it doesn't only apply to um to uh italian cooking but uh uh to many other kinds of cooking certainly mexican cuisine and, and uh, in my own experience and indian cooking you can take relatively inexpensive but incredibly flavorful um uh ingredients and make something you know uh, it, indian food some of the best vegan food i've had that has incredible depth of layered taste and you know really amazing spice to it because i i you know i in most other cultures i miss having if not red meat in it which i'm trying to avoid but either chicken or fish or some sort of an animal protein in it but um the best indian i mean the best vegan food i've had in, in my experience has been um has has been indian yeah no i've uh I've heard that. I've seen that on a lot of uh, travel shows as as well. Uh, so here's an interesting question: outside of pizza, and maybe even outside of um, Italian cuisine, obviously you said you don't follow recipes a lot. But what have you made any um, interesting attempts at dishes outside of Italian? Oh sure. Um, again, I would do it. Without, um, let me I'll give you an example from 25 years ago or so. When I, uh, 25 or 30 years ago, there was a Thai restaurant I went to in Los Angeles, and they just had a, a, a chicken curry in a, in a red peanut curry. I could taste the peanut in it. I, I wasn't sure if there was, you could taste the peanut, you could taste the lemongrass, the garlic. So a normal, this is pre-internet, okay? So... I uh, I would go to a Thai grocery store and speaking to people whose English language skills were not so great and kind of pointing at containers and all that, they would hand me uh, the red curry paste and I knew it had peanut in it and I knew it had garlic in it and it seemed to have cilantro and lemongrass. I would just buy the things, go home and make the sauce in a blender and keep tasting it, turning the blender off, stick my finger in, give it a taste. Until I came up with a really, really good approximation of the way it was when I went to the restaurant. Again, never I could have looked up a recipe in a back then. It would have had to have been a cookbook. Now, with the internet, it couldn't be easier. But part of the challenge for me was to see how close I could come on my own. And guess that was that's what made it fun. And uh, and and I still do that. I'll taste something and try to isolate the elements, you know, and, and challenge my taste buds and try to fake it as best I can. And then if it's too frustrating, then look up a recipe. <laughs> yeah, actually, interesting tip. Um, I don't know if you usually have um, fish sauce on hand, but there are a lot of Italian dishes that have anchovies in them, but 
if you don't have anchovies, a little bit of fish sauce is actually a very good substitute. You mean you mean a, a, a fish sauce? You mean a Thai fish sauce used in an Italian recipe as yeah. a substitute? Yeah. Great idea. Now they have that great anchovy in a tube. You know this. You know, and find so many. Uh, the, uh, when I first visited Germany 30, 35 years ago, I marveled at the fact that they had all these great mustards in tubes that look like toothpaste tubes. So now every time I go to Germany, I, I grab some German mustard because it's such a great way to store mustard. It's a great way to store uh, anchovy paste or tomato paste or anything like that. So you don't have to use it up. Not like opening a can where you've got to use it in the first two or three days. You have it in the fridge. Um, so yes, we have a lot to learn. We, we in America have a lot to learn about using tubes for things other than, other than toothpaste. And it's interesting, actually. You mentioned that obviously fish sauce right now is very associated with like Thai and other East Asian cuisine, but probably one of the oldest fish sauces is actually from Rome. Really? Yeah, it's uh, called garum. And what? How is it? Is it sold um, in a in like a bottle, like a balsamic vinegar, and then once you open it, you put it in the fridge? Or uh, I'm not sure, but from what I understand, uh, an Italian garum is almost indistinguishable in terms of how it's made from other styles of fish sauce. I'm actually going to be attempting to make my own soon. Um, I, uh, I'm always, I, I just, I, I'm fascinated when uh, I either go to a restaurant and I'm served something. I don't know why, it, because we just are talking about fish. Uh, I ate at a famous uh, restaurant in London called Harry's Bar. I think the original one is in uh, I beg your pardon, not in London, in, in Rome. I think the original Harry's Bar is in, uh, is in Venice. And, and ordered Bronzino, and the fish came packed. It was like packed in salt crystals, some kind of rub that had so much rock salt in it that the fish looked like a torpedo when it came out, like a kind of a skinny torpedo. And then they kind of cracked the, uh, the salt encasement off of it. And the fish was absolutely succulent and delicious inside. Apparently, only a certain amount of the salt flavoring went into the fish. It sounds awful. It sounds like it's going to be so salty you can't eat it. But it had this sort of crust on it that seemed to be primarily – they just showed me the fish, then came back, and it had been cracked off. It may have had a lot of other spices in it. I don't know. But it was uh, – I, I was uh, my whole point in bringing it up is I was a little scared when it, when it came out of the kitchen – and the waiter shows it to you, and then it's delicious. So, uh, uh, cooking, um, you know, I, I have many friends who are, re- are really serious about cooking. They're, they're, they, uh, they make these incredible meals that they originally learned from recipes. And as I said, I, ad- I admire them. But uh, my own style has served me fairly well through life. You asked me how I got interested in cooking. I told you about cooking with my mom when I was very young. But... The other part of the story I didn't tell you is that, you know, as a as a young college grad, 20 years old, going to acting school, I worked at an Italian restaurant and I would 
as I waited tables, but I would stand in the kitchen and watch them make all of the dishes. So I learned a lot from watching. But most importantly, I had more, I, my taste in what I wanted to eat was, was beyond what my finances could afford as a, you know, as a guy who was putting himself through acting school pretty much on, you know, on a limited amount of money make, made as a waiter. So I had, in order for me to eat the I wanted to eat, I had to learn how to make it. There was the, you know, I could not afford to go to uh, restaurants every day and eat what I wanted. So I was kind of forced to learn and I would shop for, you know, you could get really great ingredients in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, so I just learned how to make something on my own that was much better than I could afford to buy at a restaurant. So that was the other impetus. A lot of people feel like, you know, uh, I don't really cook cause you know, I don't have the time to do it or, you know, I'd rather have someone else do it. Well, that's all great. Everybody would like to eat a great meal made by someone else. But when you, uh, I, I refuse to eat the kind of food that I could afford to buy out at that stage of my life. And then, and then the passion to learn how to cook has, I've, has stayed with me, even as I became more financially successful and can afford to eat out far more often. I still don't feel at home anywhere unless I have cooked there. I love to, when I visit a friend who's got an apartment in Rome, I love to cook in Rome, shop the ingredients in Rome, and then make the meal there. I love to cook, you know, when I would go up to do Stargate in Vancouver, there was a great market, and I, they would, I'd ask for a room that had a mini kitchen in it, and I would cook everything while I was up there shooting I would I would make my own meals. I would fly to Vancouver carrying my own pizza pan. I would fly to Mexico to do a movie, carry my own Pecorino Romano grated cheese because I couldn't find it in Mexico where I was working. So you learn to, you know, if you love to cook, you, you want to take it with you, even, even when you're not home. For sure. And uh, every, that, uh, that salt, uh, salt baking technique, I've seen a few versions. I think the easiest one to do is you actually lightly whip some egg whites and then you add a ton of salt and that sort of helps establish the crust. But if you ever do want to attempt that, I can uh, do some research. Well, you are really, um, I am very impressed with your the breadth of your knowledge because I've just been tossing ideas uh, left and right and you seem to know uh, something about uh, about everything you seem to have researched everything so uh, clearly I have a lot to learn uh, from your podcast and I am uh, and I know I'm only an amateur I wish I could speak but if I I will give you if you want um, the recipe that I have taught so many of my friends that is the most popular one because it's so simple is my grandmother my paternal grandmother's um, fresh spinach pizza. Uh, I'm not going to tell yeah, everybody no, has their, their own pizza crust. It, it only, the top of it, I think has five ingredients in it and you make your own best pizza crust, whatever that is. If you're lazy or unconfident, you can go to Trader Joe's and buy their pre-made pizza crust, or you can go to a, an Italian bakery where they sell pre-made dough, if that's what you want. And, um, I'm not going to give you, you know, my dough recipe because it's so simple. Um, but once you've made the dough and rolled it out into a pan, as you can, then for the topping, you're going to make basically a spinach salad. Take about 
for each pizza that's about, uh, let's see, like uh, if the pan is approximately 14 inches in diameter, I would take about a 10 or 12 ounce bag of baby spinach and you're going to toss it in a bowl. And again, I never measure anything, so I'm doing this off the top of my head, even though I've been making this since I was a little kid. Uh, I don't measure, but I start out with perhaps with two tablespoons of olive oil. You're going to add more on the top. In the bottom of the bowl, uh, uh, depending on how much you like garlic, one large or two medium-sized cloves of garlic crushed through your best garlic press mixed in with the oil, a healthy dose of fresh cracked black pepper, toss the 10 or 12 ounces of baby spinach, and then throw in two heaping tablespoons of grated Pecorino Romano. Pecorino Romano is a sheep's milk cheese. And you toss that in. Then you take that salad and lay it out on the pizza crust. It's about two inches high. Um, this, you, you center it on your pizza crust. Try not to go over the edges so it doesn't burn onto the edge of the pan. Then you finish it off with about an extra uh, tablespoon and a half of olive oil drizzled on the top, another half a teaspoon of cheese spread around on the top, bake it in a 500 degree oven on a low rack, and then after the pizza sets up for about four or five minutes, slide it off the pan so the bottom gets very slightly burned because you want to simulate a wooden a wood fire oven. So you put a little char on the crust and the crust has to be absolutely crisp and rigid when you bite it. And it is the best thing in the world and has no tomato, has very little cheese. Uh, you're getting a, a nice big uh, salad bowl sized dose of spinach and everyone loves it. I've taught so many people to make this pizza and they love it. Well, that's not really good. All right. I think we can wrap it up there. But can I give you a little pizza recommendation? Oh, absolutely. I would be delighted. So, again... This is kind of a, another another variant on the green pizza, so I think it's always good to have some different options. But it's a, it's a weird combination, but you have to just go with me. Uh, what I've done is, I usually make a pesto, like a, a regular basil pesto, and then I add a little bit of um, fresh, or even frozen, like green peas. So just to give the pesto a bit more body, as so you have a bit more of it to spread around. I also, I, I usually do a basil-parsley combo, which obviously isn't traditional, but it works really well. And then for a topping, it's um already cooked uh, pork belly. So this can be, you know, pancetta, or just regular pork belly that you cook separately. And then pickled apples. I missed the last thing you said, Hugh. After um, pork belly, what else? Pickled apples. Pickled apples. Now, are those the deep purple ones? They're sort of... They're, uh... I mean, they're... I mean, do you pickle your own apples, or yes. do you buy them pickled? Yeah, I, I get, like, sweet red apples, slice them up, and then just, uh, you know, boil them in jars in a 50-50 mix of um, water and vinegar with some salt, and then usually some sage as well. 
Wow, that sounds great. Will you send me this recipe now that you have my email address? Sure, I'll, I'll, uh, I don't have it written down. I'm, I'm a bit like you, oh. unless I make oh. a video, I don't uh, uh -huh. have Well, you have to tell me how to pickle. I mean, I'm not going to make my own pork belly. I'm, as I said, at this stage of life, I eat pork as a treat once in a while mm -hmm. because, A, I, my animal rights, uh, you know, feeling now that I've discovered that pigs are great pets and are smart as dogs, I feel guiltier and guiltier about eating pork. And also, it ain't that good for my, you know, for my, uh, my arteries. Uh, yeah. But I well, still actually, have it once sorry. in a while. One substitute you could yeah. do, if you feel a little better about it, is um, a little bit of duck breast. Duck breast uh, also sounds very delicious and savory. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, uh, uh, but anyway, it sounds, I mean, my guess, and you may hate me for this, but uh, I even think smoked chicken breast uh, would sounds like it would uh, work you know, as well. I'm not going to hate you because I'm actually mm -hmm. in the middle of developing a um, healthy chicken recipe. And uh, mm -hmm. I've actually been using it basically like a cured meat. Wow. What, what, is the, what is the first thing you said? What kind of a recipe? Coffee chicken. So like, like coffee a, chicken? No. Confit. Coffee. Yeah, confit. Like oh, confit. Oh, you scared me. I yeah. thought it was chicken cooked in coffee. Confit. Yes, of course. I, uh, I'm sorry about this, that your viewers, uh, your listeners have to uh, realize that uh, that I actually thought you were talking about cooking chicken in coffee. No, that's coming. Um, that's coming. <laughs> it's coming. It'll be there. Um, but listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We have to do this again sometime in the For future. Sure. I'm going to at least try to make the pickled apples, okay, whether or yeah, not I I'll, make the whole I'll, thing with a pork. I'll send you a quick recipe, because most recipes online, they're for mm -hmm. more, like, dessert pickled apples, uh -huh. and uh, I don't like those. All right, All right. and tell, remember to specify what kind of vinegar. I don't know if I use, yeah. do I use apple cider vinegar yeah, or I, white I, vinegar? I do, I do. Apple cider. Mm -hmm. All right, it's been a pleasure talking to you. you Clearly, too. you know what you're talking about, <laughs> and... Uh, and I'd like to have another conversation in the near future, that all right? That sounds good. Well, that's it for my interview with Robert Picardo. If you enjoyed this, please consider subscribing, leaving a comment, or leaving a rating. Otherwise, thank you for listening.